welcome to this special bonus episode of Republic Forces Radio Network, bringing you coverage of Star Wars The Clone Wars Season 6. Our hosts will be recapping and reviewing each arc of these Netflix-exclusive final Clone Wars episodes. And we want to hear your thoughts on the last Clone Wars episodes. Leave a message on our voicemail at 415-508-JEDI, and your call may be played on the air. Hello and welcome to Republic Forces Radio Network. I'm Jonathan, and tonight we're going to be discussing this second arc in the Season 6 Clone Wars. And joining me to discuss this trio of episodes are Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. Barrent. Hey, everybody. It's Master Collect Them All from the forums. It's good to be back. And your friend and mine, Jerry. Hey, guys. Jerry here. I have to say, it was kind of hard getting us together because... You know, for some reason, I think my bank ran out of money. (laughs) Couldn't pay the Skype bills, huh? Something like that. So, this arc consists of the episodes 5, 6, and 7 of Season 6, or The Lost Episodes, An Old Friend, The Rise of Clovis, and Crisis at the Heart. And this trio of episodes was originally slated to air in the middle of Season 5. Yes, that's true. And they were actually, we've talked about how they produce things, how they tend to produce things a little bit ahead of time. So this is something that was technically part of the season four production run meant to run early in season five and then got bumped. And bumped again. So before we dive into the specifics of this episode, why don't you guys give me your impressions and we'll start with Jerry. Well, you know, I'm... First and foremost, positive and happy that we had the chance to watch this arc via Netflix. That said, I will just be forthright now and tell you that I'm not terribly excited to talk about this arc because it's more just Senate Spy, blah, 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 blah. I actually considered watching Senate Spy prior to rewatching these episodes, but I just didn't want to. (laughs) So... It is what it is. It's a Clovis arc. It's banking stuff. This easily could have been two episodes. And to me, I think it just kind of lends to the, the, the little twist at the end. It's not a huge twist, but, it, you know, the point of the episodes that we get at the end, you're just like, oh, OK, I see now. But beyond that, this this is going to be an interesting discussion because it's not very it's not a very inspiring episode to just really go to town on like we did in the last arc. And even what I think the next two arcs are going to be like. Bert? What were your impressions of this arc? Well, I'm glad you asked me that, Jonathan, because I think it's well known how well I liked Senate Spy. In fact, I believe that I said Senate Spy was uh, my favorite episode of season two. And I got a lot of flack for that. (laughs) So I was kind of excited to finally get the arc that we've all been asking for. I mean, you go on forums, you go on Facebook, social media, One of the things was, where's the Clovis arc? Where's the Clovis arc? We thought we were going to get the Clovis arc in season five, and we didn't get it. It just didn't fit with the overall theme. So we finally get the Clovis arc. So I was pretty excited to see uh, what we were going to get. Okay. Nathan, why don't you give us your thoughts? You know, it's funny. We spend a lot of time when we talk about the Clone Wars talking about whether an episode feels like Star Wars or not. And usually when we say something feels like Star Wars, we're comparing it to the feel of the classic trilogy. In a lot of ways, the prequels don't have the feel of Star Wars, if that's our 
barometer that we're using. I would say, though, that of the four arcs in this Lost Missions season, this one, to me, probably is the arc that is the most Star Wars prequels than any of the other ones. It has the things that you expect from a Star Wars prequel at this point. It has a, a crisis manipulated by the Sith to grant more power to Palpatine in one form or another. Um, which is basically what we got in all three prequels. It's got Anakin interacting with Padme in a way that shows his eventual descent and how that relationship is a big part of what is going to cause him to fall to the dark side as opposed to being something to lift him up, as one would expect of a true love story and such. It's very much a political story. It has echoes of bank bailouts and such recently. The whole, uh, you know, long live the banks and all of that. But... Put in context of the prequels, I think this is a very strong arc. I mean, I think all the arcs of this season are particularly strong, but I would dare say that in my mind, there's some struggle between this arc and the previous one as to which one better fits connective tissue of the prequels. The Order 66 arc that's about that one thing and doesn't provide much answers, or this one that continues those relationship and political themes that are so prevalent in episodes one through three. Okay, now my turn to sound in on this arc. I understand what you're saying, Nathan, about this feeling very prequel-ish, especially sort of Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Palpatine's machinations. But when I look at this in comparison to the Clone Wars, yes, we've had certain Senate spy episodes and other political intrigue episodes, but overall, I think I'm going to fall a little bit more on Jerry's perception of this this arc because I didn't find it particularly engaging. I think it would have made a much stronger two-part arc, but there there seemed to be, you know, a, a thin story that was padded a lot. I mean, there was a couple of good action scenes, but they didn't add anything to this arc. That being said, this arc did have probably one of my favorite scenes from all of season six in it, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But as we've said, we bring back our old friend from Season 2 in Senate Spy, Rush Clovis, a previous love interest to Padme and a, I guess, competitor for Anakin. Uh, were you guys happy to see him back or, yeah, whatever? Yeah, I was excited to see Clovis. I was excited to see the dynamic of how that's going to work between Anakin and Clovis and Padme. You know, because we had some fireworks last time, if you remember, Anakin left Clovis to die, basically. So it, it, I was excited to see that whole combination of, of events that's going to happen. You know, not so much the banking part of it. You know, although the moons to me seemed, I, you know, I guess we'll talk about it, but the moons were pretty uh, fleshed out from what I had in my mind what moons were. And, uh, you know, so I was excited to see how that was going to play out. I personally just find it so implausible the entire role he plays that he's you know the most trusted person that the the moons have and of course Clovis gives us that backstory later which is really out of left field and for Padme to just come in there and say oh no we won't do business with him and then ten minutes later okay we'll do business with him the, the whole thing to me was just so. Uh, implausible. I'm just like, you know, there, I, I can't imagine this situation would exist given where Clovis was at last time we saw him. Oh, I'd say that I, to use either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern, uh, happy in that I am not over happy to see him back. On the one hand, this makes Senate Spy into somewhat of a prequel. And in that sense, it takes an episode that I thought was kind of meh 
back in the day, but had so much potential, actually for a lot of stuff that plays out here, finally sort of blossoms in this story. So Senate Spy gets a chance to actually become part of something greater, um, which I think is admirable in that case. And if you're going to have someone here uh, to provide that type of impetus for the story issues that we get here with Anakin and Padme, it really needed to be somebody that we had met before. It was, it felt contrived a little bit in Senate Spy when Rush Clovis was thrown out there and we'd never heard of him before. And you've got this whole sense of, oh, wait a second, now he's there. This is the guy who his presence could screw up the relationship between Anakin and Padme, really? Well, now it's been, what, four seasons, technically, since the last time we saw the guy. He's a known quantity. So now it works to make him be the one to be playing through all of this. They did have to find a way to make him fit in with the banking clan and everything, but they never really said a whole lot about his background when we saw him in Senate Spy. We know he'd been a senator, and eventually uh, he winds up working for the Separatists, and he winds up getting left on Cato Nemoidia. What happens then? Now we find out that not only is this a guy who had a relationship with Padme back their first year as senators, which means about, what, three, four years, give or take, before the Clone Wars actually started. I'd have to probably look up the date. Um, but not very long ago in the grand scheme of things here. And, and that was about it. Now we know, okay, that is his past with her, but this was a guy who was from a family who was essentially servants or attaches to a wealthy intergalactic banking clan family on Scipio. He winds up being uh, sort of having an interest in him taken by the scion of that household. When his parents die, the servant parents die, and the wife of that head of household dies, he gets taken in and adopted. And in that sense, he becomes a high-ranking human official or high-ranking, well-trusted human within this mostly immune society. In that sense, it makes sense. And for him to be a representative that can work with the Republic, having been a senator for Scipio, it seems like it all makes sense. It's, it's very convenient for them to give us the backstory all here to make it all work. I have no illusions that they actually had that backstory for him imagined back when we first saw him in Senate Spy, but it gives a plausible reason for him to be here in this situation and be the one maneuvered here. I mean, he kind of comes off in this story as if he is someone who uh, is trying to mend his ways and do good, not so much because of Padme or because of what he did before, so much as he's wanting to do right by this society and his adopted family in that sense. And the fact that it's the banking clan, when we also know that Darth Plagueis, with Lucas's input into the novel, that Darth Plagueis was Hego Damask, a Mune, Mun, whatever, who was working with the intergalactic banking clan, just adds more depth to their involvement in the entire prequel era. It, it works for me to have him back, but I was very skeptical when it started because of Senate Spy. I was pleasantly surprised. Nathan, much like you, I thought he was done. I thought when he got left on Cato Nemoidia and Lot Dodd kind of, you know, wants to have a little conversation with him at the end, I figured that was his death sentence. But I think something that they could have done is maybe explained a little bit how he came back from that situation. And I don't think this episode did that very well. I would like to know how he moved back into the, I guess, the, the ranks of the banking clan. And while we're talking about the banking clan... Maybe you guys can answer a question for me. I thought that the banking clan was centered on Munalist and that the Muns were pretty much solidly in the camp of the Confederacy. Are you referring to the uh, Tartakovsky Clone Wars, uh, kind of like I was? I, I'm, I had the exact same questions. Like, wait a minute, what's, is that just like the planet of the vault or what? 
You know, this this was my question. I mean, how much of that is in canon? How much is of that is out of canon? And I mean, we've never heard of the planet Scipio before, which really <laughs> sounds kind of like a silly name. I mean, I come from Scipio. Do, do, come do, here, Scippy. <laughs> I, I pictured all the natives having little beanies with propellers on the top. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, maybe you could give us a little bit more information on the banking clan and who are they and whose side are they on? Because I know we saw Sand Hill in episode two at the table with the Confederacy. So what gives? It kind of it, it's gone back and forth because of seeing him in Attack of the Clones. The assumption was the banking clan must be part of the Confederacy of Independent Systems. So when you look at the uh, the comics and the novels and such that were portrayed, and the Tartakovsky series, as they portrayed the intergalactic banking clan back during the period, say, 2002 up to about 2008, in all of those cases, they tended to use them as the villain. And then you get uh, the Clone Wars cartoon series we're talking about now, and Lucas has essentially stepped in and said, actually, you know, they're like most financial institutions in a time of war. They're sort of working both sides. It, it seems as though the only way that all of this makes sense is for essentially it to be factional, which is somewhat hinted at with um, what we get with the Darth Plagueis novel, this idea essentially that the intergalactic banking clan is so freaking gigantic that there are different people within different leadership divisions within it, and they will tend to lean towards one side or the other, whereas the organization itself, in theory, is just out to make money. And in that sense, they're going to wind up essentially playing both sides. But yeah, to have Sand Hill be there immediately connects this in our mind to the idea that this must be a separatist thing. Um, but apparently in Lucas's way of looking at things, that was us looking too much into it. Presumably Sand Hill was there as an independent representative of the banking clan, I guess simply because Dooku needed funding for what he was trying to pull back then. But it's definitely a a an issue, and it's not something that's even solved by these because by the end of this arc, we find the banks essentially under the command of Palpatine, and yet there's still at least a little bit left of the Clone Wars, and in a lot of the other material that's out there, they are still tending to be seen as on the Separatist side. Unless them being taken over here is now going to be said to be a reason for why maybe a faction within the banking clan more overtly sides with the Separatists so that we can see their ships and whatnot uh, in Revenge of the Sith. It sort of seems like Lucas kind of changed his mind mid-stride, and now everything has to catch up with it, which is not the first time that's happened with this series. And another point I wanted to address, Nathan, is you said that you felt that Clovis was trying to redeem himself. I guess I took it a different way. Throughout this episode, I kind of took it as Clovis was making a power play. He saw this as an opportunity to get some of the things that he wanted. More control in the banking clan, uh, the banking society, the, the moon society, and also to reclaim Padme. Jerry, where do you weigh in on this? You know, I, I guess maybe Clovis took me along for a ride too, because I really got the impression that Clovis really had the most sincerest intentions all along. I, I never really got that he was just taking advantage of a good opportunity of just trying to, hey, you know, like you said, make my power play and here's my in. I really think he was trying to do what was best for the for the Muns. And I think we kind of see that in sort of his eyes at the end when Dooku pretty much tells him how he's going to have to raise the interest rates on the Republic, but then not raise anything on them. And, you know, to where he was 
Sora became a desperate man at the end. I think we were supposed to see Clovis as a little bit as a victim here. It felt to me very much like he was uh, he was the one being manipulated a lot of time, not the manipulator. He, he is the one who just by being in that position starts running into these anomalies that seems like it's just a good faith, holy crap, something's up with our banking system, it's going to fall apart kind of whistleblower thing he's trying to do. He seems like he is at least somewhat you know, in the right, uh, certainly on the right side of uh, the force, so to speak, in terms of his intentions. And, that, you know, we need to find the evidence. We need to prove this. I'm not going to try to bring him down. I'm not going to try to take him over. But we need to prove this. It just happens to wind up putting him into power. The fact that Dooku helps him, uh, he, he even talks afterwards, you know, about how he intends to remain independent. But Dooku is kind of like the mob boss. You know, you don't get anything really for free. The only point at which it felt to me like he actually was doing some manipulating is that desperation Jerry talked about at the end. It seemed like all the way up through till maybe his last scene or two, it seemed as though he was doing what he thought was best. And in some cases, he himself was being manipulated because of Embo, for instance, making an attempt on his life as a way to make the situation look uh, worse than it actually was and so forth. But then at the end, he echoes Anakin from Revenge of the Sith, whereas Anakin talked about how he's more powerful than the Emperor and could overthrow Sidious at some point, you know, and rule the galaxy with Padme at his side. Basically, here's Clovis saying that, you know, he can eventually outmaneuver Dooku, take control of the banks again, and make it the way they're supposed to be. Only in Anakin's case, it has that sense that it's, you know, that same petulant child thing that he had going on at times, where it's about what he wants, his vision. I will make things my way. It will be controlled. Whereas, at least with Clovis, even when he says that, it still seems as though he's talking about, you know, I want to bring fairness, I want to make things work right, we just got to put up with this little period of corruption until we can finally root it out and then it will be okay. Even his words at the end that sound like he was perhaps trying to get power still make it sound like he was much more benevolent than Anakin when he says something very similar later. So, now I'm not buying that, that he was in on the plot to put himself into power. I think he was just a fortunate beneficiary of the events happening around him uh, in his mind and a pawn of the Sith in their mind. Well, he was definitely duped. Now, the question I think you're asking is, did he have sinister motives from the start before he got duped? And, you know, I went back and watched Senate Spy because that was a question I wanted to know for myself was, was he always kind of a bad guy from the start when we first get introduced to him? And in Senate Spy, he, I, you know, I can't, I don't think he's a bad guy. I just maybe think he's not smart because in Senate Spy, he brings Padme to this meeting where they have the plans for the droid factory. And even Poggle is hiding and they ask, you know, why did you bring her here and stuff like that? So it's not like he even brought Padme the first time to get set up and poisoned. It's just, they just used her like that to try to force Clovis to do what they wanted them to do. And in this one, you know, I, I ended up rooting a lot for Clovis and it just didn't seem like he was an evil guy. So I never got the impression that he was out to get into power. I just, you know, I just never got the impression of that. And I, I never got the answer of why, when I went back and watched Sentence Spy, why would he even be involved with the whole uh, droid factory in the first place i mean the, he has a, a good reason to get involved here you know because they give him a backstory of how he was raised with the immune people and and stuff like that he just never seemed evil to me so to answer your question i never thought that he was evil that he was out for power but he definitely got duped 
at the end. When kind of going over the storyline in the first episode, an old friend, I was reminded of an old Star Wars Marvel Comics issue, and I've been searching for it, but I can't remember which one it was, where there was a big conflict on a banking planet between Vader and Leia, but they couldn't use any weapons or take any actions against each other because it was all considered a neutral zone that could fund both parties. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if the makers of Clone Wars kind of reached back into uh, that time period to pluck elements of this story. Nathan, are you familiar with that uh, issue? You are talking about the third law way, way, way back. That was a Larry Hama's issue, issue 48 of uh, the Marvel series. Very similar Similar concept in the sense that they're going to a banking world that could provide to either side, but there's not a, a sense that the entire banking community has the threat of falling under the control of one side or another necessarily throughout. It's more of a, uh, a getting at the rebellion's resources type of thing in that one. The one thing I did find interesting about this episode, and this was something we alluded to earlier, was that initially Padme encountered Clovis and was like, nope, don't want anything to do with him. And then, you know, after five minutes talking to him on her balcony, she decides to trust in him enough to basically engage in sabotage and theft. I I thought that was one heck of a shift. You're not wrong in that. And Padme shows a lot of, she makes a lot of decisions that are kind of go against her character. You know, one thing that jumped out at me also was that the first person she calls is Palpatine. She doesn't call Anakin when Clovis sneaks onto her balcony and says, you know, help me, asks her for her help. She calls Palpatine. And I thought that was kind of strange for her to call him first instead of Anakin after what happened. And she's married to Anakin, you know, and so she does a lot of things that are out of character. You really think that that was strange considering Anakin's reaction to Clovis last time and his subsequent reaction later in this episode to Clovis? She knows her husband. She knows how he's going to react. If she tells him, oh, by the way, Clovis is here, what do you think he's going to do? Well, we see exactly what he's going to do. But my point, <laughs> as a married man, if they're married in a relationship and they, it, we know what happened in Senate Spy, I mean, she got poisoned. She doesn't tell her husband first. I mean, it's kind of like, hey, if you go to that clone bar, right, you meet a Twi'lek and the Twi'leks, you know, are you going to tell your wife about the Twi'lek? It's kind of like if you don't feel comfortable telling your husband or wife about something, you really shouldn't do it. And I just found that strange that she should go straight to Anakin. And, you know, why shouldn't she trust Anakin? She knows Anakin's going to get upset. But we find later in the episodes to come in the story to come that She's not trusting Anakin very much, you know? She's kind of scared of Anakin. She's She even says, you know, sometimes I don't know who's inside of you. So it's it says later on why she makes those decisions, but I thought it was very character-building for Padme. You know, I think that it, it fits the theme of the shows, though, because I, I just gathered very, taking it for what it appears to be on the surface, I took it very much as I'm going to contact the chancellor about this because I really just want to know what's the right political thing to do. You know, it's not about 
talking to someone, getting just kind of advice, like maybe I'd go to my husband to see if he approves of me associate, you know, from a romantic jealousy sort of thing. It's like, no, what would the Republic have me to do? Because she says that to Anakin multiple times. I only do this because it's the best thing for the Republic. And, you know, why did you why did you accept to do that, Padme? Well, because the Chancellor asked me to. I, how, how could I say no? So she, it's very consistent with her character to make sure that she does the right thing for the Republic. As we learn later in this arc, I mean, their relationship, they need some therapy. I mean, honestly, the two of them are not a functional couple. <laughs> I mean, that's something that, that we can certainly get into in a little bit. But on the, on the issue that you brought up, which is Padme ch- changing her mind so quickly, we are given a reason in the episode. It's just not a particularly clear reason in the episode. You need to read the episode guide on StarWars.com to be able to realize what we just saw and have it confirmed. They are talking. She's willing to hear him out just because they have a history and he's already there. So they step out to speak uh, as Tekla leaves the room um, so they can, or at least leaves the little area there so they can go out on the balcony alone and talk. But he's talking about this dangerous thing that he has found out and immediately upon talking about it, he's being shot at by Imbo. And we find by the end of the episode that Imbo has been hired by Sidious slash Palpatine, who, of course, in this arc, wants control of the banks. So uh, you would think, well, wait a second, was he really trying to kill Clovis? Because if he actually killed Clovis or killed Padme, that would have ended the investigation and he wouldn't have gotten control of the banks. You get into the episode guide and they flat out say that he peppers the balcony with blaster fire, quote, but conspicuously misses. Imbo wasn't trying to kill Clovis for Sidious or kill Padme for Sidious. He was trying to provide that impetus that they feel like there is a real danger. We must do something about it. Very much like pursuing their escape so that they don't stay there and investigate. They take off going back to Coruscant to put him back into his own, Palpatine's own political arena. The manipulation makes sense. She changes her mind fairly quickly as a result of that. But that, I think, is just the time constraints of the episode. But there is a reason given in the episode. It's just not clear. I actually interpreted that the miss was intentional. A, I just think Embo would have been a much better shot, especially with the type of equipment he was using. And, and I actually, I, I thought it was such an obvious miss that I expected Clovis to have been in on it. Like, hey, take a little shot at me. Uh, we'll make the story seem really good for Padme. Then we'll get her on her side. She'll help us out. I actually thought that was, uh, I actually took that as foreshadowing that Clovis was in on it. Of course, that wasn't the case. But yeah, I, I didn't really think Embo would be the kind of bounty hunter that screw up such an easy shot. So basically what we're saying is that they're idiots, <laughs> that they were easily manipulated. Because I guess it's just not ringing true for me, this part of it. It just seems like everybody was way too easily manipulated. And then when we later get into the vault, I mean, yes, they eventually arrest Padme for espionage, but they can't figure out that the first time they let an outsider into the vault, suddenly they lose power. This doesn't clue them in. I mean, seriously, like every is there something in the air that like lowers IQs on this planet? <laughs> I think that did. I think it did clue him in. I think that's why they arrested her. They put, you know, two and two together. But Yeah, they, they did arrest her fairly quickly, though. She really just got back to her room. And the body that they find, you know, this was supposed to be Clovis going and putting in the charge, but they wouldn't let him leave. Clovis wasn't asking her to do the sabotage. Clovis was asking her to go in and steal the information. And when you take the information, it's not like it's gone. It's just essentially making a copy of it. So in that sense, she should have been able to get, at, get in, get it, and hopefully get out with her haughty 
you know, this is like a tomb thing, and maybe be able to play it off. But because he couldn't go, Tekla Masao had to go and winds up getting killed by Emba, which, again, makes sure that Padme is implicated in all this. She could have gotten there, put in the charge, and escaped like Clovis could have. It blows up, it looks suspicious, but how do they prove it? Instead, Embo's there to push things along, kills her, lets the body be there to be found, which definitely implicates Padme. It, it's, it's all this, they are kind of dumb at times, it seems like in these the, the episode, but it's, it's that whole, how do you make something that is sort of a political thriller, apparently a... a uh, a 70s style political thriller and do it in such a way that kids watching the show will still be able to understand most of what they're seeing. You know, I think it's just that, that, that simplifying for the sake of the audience and time thing. Like Anakin in Revenge of the Sith immediately bowing to Sidious after chopping Mace's arm off. Man, that whole time I was asking myself, I said, Padme has a handmaiden still? Why does she still have this handmaiden? The handmaiden was in every secret conversation you know every time she's talking to clovis about something or they're talking to someone else the handmaiden was there and i kept saying why is this handmaiden there and she gets shot that i mean that was cold-blooded you know to shoot the handmaiden cold-blooded embo's cold-blooded i mean this is the first time we've actually seen him commit murder i mean the last time we saw him he's kind of the hero right he's in this band of heroes uh doing good well or protecting or whatever but i mean he just straight up shot a defenseless woman. And I thought that was pretty cold blooded. And that was kind of a shocking death as any death in, in the series. Now, Emmo has always been the true mercenary or bounty hunter. Yes. At times he worked with a group to defend some farmers against pirates. Another time he worked for the huts in the Knight brothers arc. I mean, he will go where he's paid to go. You know, he is truly the definition of a bounty hunter. No sides, it's all about the credits. Didn't Embo look really good this time? They really did a number on him. I mean, I didn't notice that he had honeycomb eyes and that he had this uh, light up square, this red square that left a red kind of light on his forehead that's on his hat. I mean, they really put in some work on Embo. He looked great. Well, we know that Embo is a favorite of Filoni and that, you know, any chance that this type of character needs to be in a story, we're going to get Embo. And I was... I was pleased to see him back, kind of his swan song, unless he shows up for some reason in Rebels. All right, I'll get to it. I, I thought it was a little odd how they used him later. The the cha- the snow chase after Anakin comes and basically bails out Padme. They go to Clovis's home to look for him and look for the data. And they're pursued by Embo in his, you know, super hat. And I don't know... Maybe I should like it, but that whole snow chase arc, it just seemed a little silly to me. Oh, it's very silly, but you need action at some point within the first chunk of this arc, you know, act one of three. So, you know, who else to do that than bring in Imbo so he can do the crazy snowboard on his hat thing? But again, even that serves a purpose because it's able to drive them back to the Republic. So instead of investigating on their own, they can really push the issue uh, in hopes of being able to get the Republic to, to, to be put into the position that's going to let Palpatine wind up getting power over it. Uh, I think that's one of those things It's definitely we get the, the period placed on the end of that sentence, so to speak, when immediately after they escape, Imbo contacts Sidious to let him know, you know what has been going on with this particular chase. Um, it does exactly what they wanted it to do. It serves that purpose within the story as opposed to being just 
hey, let's throw in a snow chase somewhere. But he could have done anything to cause them to leave. He could have chased them on foot towards the docking bay. It just is a lot more action-packed and gives us more fun adventure in this episode if it's a sledge that is shot and then has to act as a snowmobile chased by crazy Captain America on his shield. And I'm not disagreeing that it it did serve a purpose. I agree with that, that, you know, they needed that catalyst to, to feel like there was some immediacy to getting back to Coruscant and for Clovis to unseat the uh, the ruling council of the banking clan. Yes, the, the two parties just shooting down the, this convenient ice trench there. Uh, it just, it was silly. I would have, I guess I would have preferred it if Embo had maybe been on a speeder bike or, or there was some other way to do it because I just, I thought the hat, I thought the, you know, snowboarding on his hat was kind of silly. We've seen that hat used as a shield. We've seen it used as a weapon. Now we've seen it used as a snowboard. Okay. And I, I will say that I really like Embo's dog. And I know we've seen him there before. And what I found hilarious and my boys picked up on this too, is at the end of the sequence, when they've gotten to Anakin's shuttle and are taking off, his dog, who is chasing Anakin up at Clovis's house, was automatically there. That must be one hell of a fast dog, because he gave Embo back his hat <laughs> not 10 seconds after Anakin, made, Anakin, Padme, and Clovis made their escape. Unless Anakin's force push that knocked Embo back smacked him so far back towards where they started that he wound up running into Maruk as he ran down to meet them. Man, you are seriously the apologist for this episode, Nathan. Apparently, I guess it's my turn. Well, and Jonathan, I think that leads into a lot of what I was saying, too, about just how implausible the situations in this episode are. I mean, you, you mentioned a few items yourself, and to me, it, it starts with the whole concept of we're arresting Padme for being a spy, Anakin, a Jedi, not even a Republic official, although I know he's a general in the in the army, but why why was she handed over? Now, I know there's a little contention among the the, the Muns and that. It's probably really uh, Palpatine that just made sure that, hey, l- let her into the custody so he can she can come back here and do that before anybody finds out. That's probably the real answer that I'm supposed to take from it. But on the surface, initially, it just seemed kind of weird that they let her go. They get on a basically a, a, an air skiff of some variety and just kind of take off somewhere. Not back to the ship and get off the planet because she's a spy. It'd be like our State Department handing over a spy to someone's nation, and then they just hop in a car and go toward D.C. before they leave. <laughs> well, the, the Munes are in a demilitarized zone, right? They're in a neutral zone, so they don't have offensive weapons and, and stuff. I mean, their guards are basically just standing there with no weapons. So, I mean, maybe they don't have the capability to chase after somebody. If we're going to make the, if I'm going to make the apologist argument here, you could make the argument that doing anything that would oppress the issue, if, if the Republic wants to have Padme released to Anakin into his custody, basically essentially uh, on his own, her own recognizance and everything, um, if the Republic had wanted to push that, that would bring up what did she find, what is the truth, what's the corruption there. So if the core five that run the IBC need to be keeping that, you know, kind of on the down low, they really can't raise too much of a stink at this point over the idea of what's to be done uh, with Padme. If they're not going to just kill her right then to keep her quiet, they got to wonder what's she going to say, what's Clovis going to say about the information that, in theory, they found, which, frankly, is a little bit confusing information. You see, he describes it like a Ponzi scheme almost in this episode, like they're bringing in money from one loan repayment to pay out another one, which is actually 
kind of how banking works. Money comes into the bank and then from that pool, so to speak, goes out as loans except the reserve requirement that the Fed keeps and all, uh, or has them keep. But then later, it sounds much more like they're siphoning from the accounts to put it into the accounts that belong to members of the core five. I guess that's why it's supposed to be empty and why they're having to do the Ponzi scheme type thing. But the way it's described here, what would come out if Padme or Clovis were to speak and have the last bits of information that they need seems somewhat to change between this episode and the next, unless that's the explanation we're supposed to expect from it. And speaking of explanations, in the next episode, Clovis and Anakin and Padme return to Coruscant and explain the situation to Palpatine, who presents it to the Senate. And man, they are not happy to see Clovis, are they? (laughs) I like the scene that was more interesting is when Clovis is reintroduced to Palpatine and the Jedi before they actually get to the Senate. And Anakin is boiling over with anger. I mean, he is like scowling at Clovis every time Clovis talks. Just the mere mention of them working together. Yoda looks up at Anakin. I mean, they have to know by now. You know, I don't think there's any question in my mind that they know what's going on, that they're letting it go because he's the chosen one. And, you know, they even have a scene with Anakin and Obi-Wan, which is a great scene. No, I think that's right, because earlier I described that there might have been my favorite scene in this whole season in this episode, and this is it. The discussion between Anakin and Obi-Wan in Anakin's quarters, It, it you're right, Baron. It shows that they know. I don't think they know how deep it goes, but they know that that Anakin and Padme have feelings for each other. And then in some cases, it is clouding Anakin's judgment. And I think Obi-Wan being able to come back and compare that to, you know, his relationship with Satine, I just, I thought it was a beautifully written scene. Absolutely. It was probably one of the best scenes in, in a long time. Very character building. You see Anakin's room. He has a pod racer poster on his wall with Sebulba. And that other character, I can't remember the other character's name. He's playing with a pod racer and he's, he's fixing something, you know, he's tooling around and it's totally going back to, you know, when he was a kid, when he first met Padme. You're absolutely right. The way he brings it back and says, Hey, I know you know about me and Satine. You know, it's not, it's not that you can't have the feelings. It's that you can't take it so far. And Anakin gets very angry. And Obi-Wan just finally says, you know, we aren't going to have any problems then, right? If you guys are just friends. But they know. They definitely know. And I I just thought that that was really cool brother-brother moment, you know, where you're trying to keep your brother out of trouble. You know he's going to do something stupid. And he was just trying to help him out. It was great. It shows a depth of relationship that we don't often get to see between Anakin and Obi-Wan. It's something that's always alluded to. It's especially when Obi-Wan in episode four is telling Luke about how good of friends he and Anakin were during the Clone Wars. It's not something that we ever really have seen. We certainly never really saw it in the movies, except maybe for one little scene in Revenge of the Sith. But this is something, it's completely believable here. I think it's a great scene. It's one of these things that this whole question of, you know, how could the Jedi have been so stupid? How could they not have known is one of those questions that gets brought up a lot or got brought up a lot as the films were being released. And there was a great scene similar to to somewhat of what we see here that we got back in Wild Space, uh, the uh, story that was set 
is actually the first of the original Clone Wars trade paperback style novels that was released to tie into this show that wound up getting completely blown all to crap whenever they changed the order of how the episodes in season one were supposed to go. But there's a scene there where, you know, you've got Yoda and Obi-Wan talking about how, you know, he's very attached to her. You need to make sure that he ends those feelings because of what could happen to him. And there's a conversation that I believe it's either Obi-Wan or Yoda. I think it was Obi-Wan has with Anakin in that story that's very similar to this. In this case, um, I do like the fact that he's able to reference Satine because Satine was from this series. He could have mentioned Sarasi back on Melita Dan if he talked anything about uh, his adventures with Qui-Gon and giving up the Jedi Order briefly for a woman, uh, for a girl, I guess, because they were both teens at the time. Uh, he could have mentioned Siri Tachi. It sort of seems like it's Obi-Wan's thing to have an attraction to someone and then not follow it, even right after uh, the Clone Wars with Annalene Caldwell uh, on Tatooine. But it's an interesting conversation in that, A, it shows that he does recognize the feelings. They're not blind. Just like Ahsoka later will say that she knows what he means about wanting to possibly leave the Order because of feelings and, and that sort of thing. It's one of the few times it's ever said quite as clearly. And we have in this scene what is one potential continuity blunder that they very quickly explained away. You mentioned how this was supposed to be in Season 5 originally. supposed to be Episode, I think, 6, 7, and 8 or something like that of Season 5, uh, which would have meant that Satine was still alive when this episode was supposed to take place. Uh, Ahsoka wasn't in it, so they were able to push it back to after Ahsoka is gone. Now he says, you know, you've met, or whatever, um, Satine. He says it in the present tense about Satine. They turned around and said, it's not so much that he's um, uh, uh, saying, you know, that Satine is still alive so much as him using the present tense instead of the past tense just shows the depth of his anguish and how he's dealing with his grief over her death. I thought it was a nice uh, psychological way of smoothing over uh, a continuity speed bump that they ran into. It's a great scene. It's not my favorite in this arc. It's probably my second favorite, um, but it is a great scene. And then we get to what we all knew was coming, the confrontation between Clovis and Anakin. Clovis and Padme are working together, which Anakin does not like, and even goes as far as to almost order Padme to say that she isn't going to do it, which she doesn't take well to. I mean, any married man knows you don't tell the wife what to do, not if you want to keep your marriage. He walks in and finds Clovis, who is completely aware, if the Jedi aren't, Clovis is completely aware of the feelings that Anakin has for Padme. And Anakin almost catches Clovis, you know, trying to put the moves on Padme, and he has an emotional reaction. See, that's, that is the moment where some of the character motivations feel like they're jumped when it comes to Clovis. Clovis talks about wanting to be with her, et cetera, et cetera. You know, kind of he hints at this and he, he touches on it. And then he's like, oh, it's that Jedi, Anakin, et cetera, et cetera. Initially, when we see him back in the previous episode, he thinks that Anakin is a pilot, because that's the last time he saw him back in Senate Spy, that he was posing as a pilot and all. But immediately after recognizing she has feelings for him, and that's why she's not receptive to him, his thing is, well, since you're just friends, even though I know you're lying through your teeth, Padme, well, since you're just friends, he won't have a problem if I do this. And he goes in to kiss her, and that's what Anakin walks in on. This is not one of those innocent moments. This is him Clovis basically crossing the line, and that's when Anakin comes in. And he has, yes, he has his emotional reaction. This is the scene that's my favorite. Anakin beating the living crap out of Clovis and the effect that that has on Padme and her, and the way she views Anakin in light of what we're going to wind up seeing in Revenge of the Sith and all. But 
as much as people online were talking about how, well, Anakin just completely goes overboard. And yes, he's a Jedi versus a normal guy. That is pretty overboard. But it wasn't like he walked in and saw them talking together very closely and saw something in it that wasn't really happening and beat the crap out of Clovis. Instead, he walks in as Clovis is actively making a move on his wife. Even if Clovis doesn't know they're married, he knows about the feelings there, and he's doing it anyway. He's making it basically a challenge. Well, since he won't care, I'm going to do this anyway, even though you pretty much just told me you're not inviting that kind of behavior, Padme. Yeah, he comes in and kicks Clovis's butt, and for good reason. I don't see why folks are, are, are all up in arms about Anakin's actions here. He goes overboard, but his impetus for starting to beat the crap out of him? Go for it, Annie. I Jerry, think, you want to... And to me, Nathan, the thing that's less plausible is not that he would attack Clovis because, I mean, he was actually forcing himself upon her. She's saying, you know, basically, no, Clovis, don't, blah, 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 blah. Although she's wearing that same outfit from episode two. <laughs> to explain the outfit, I thought the exact same thing. The whole it's, sim it's, it's similar. It's similar. Why, why is she dressed somewhat skankily for them to work in their rooms on this problem. According to the episode guide on StarWars.com, they're supposed to have just come back from going to the opera. Hence the clothes. Well, she says that. She says that out loud. The opera was nice, but I think we should get to work. Still, it's not an outfit. It's an it's it's kind of an outfit that puts some appearances out there. I mean, it's almost like... I, I kind of thought about that, too. So you're going to a... Basically on a date with a guy who's very suspect anyway. I'm not really sure why a politician would do that unless she was part of an entourage like, you know, Palpatine was there and there's just a lot of people who come together to go, but it, it came off like um, hey, that was a great movie, thanks for dinner, now let's get to work, but then you know, she's dressed for, for something else, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, to me what's far less plausible, and of course I'm being silly, but what's far less plausible to me is that he didn't actually break every bone in his face the way he was smacking around on him. You know, actually, you mentioned this whole thing about the public appearances thing, where they're out in public, they're dressed like that, she's dressed like that, and they're supposed to be going back, and, and they go to her quarters, her apartment, essentially, but in theory to work, not for anything else. Somebody, and I, I really wish I had written down who it was that said it, but somebody had posted on one of our f various Facebook pages a theory, and his theory was that the reason why nobody raises a bunch of questions about Padme's pregnancy later when she starts to show, is that they're not thinking that it's Anakin. They're thinking that given when this would take place within the months leading up to Revenge of the Sith, they're thinking it was Clovis. They're just not going to oh, mention it because on. the man is dead, because of all that. And the idea that this is Lucas trying to do that. Because, I mean, if Lucas is going to use, in theory, the four Yoda episodes, supposedly as the reason why Yoda is different in the way he acts in Empire versus the way he acts in the prequels and the Clone Wars... I would not put it past him for this arc to in part have been set up for why it is that people don't question the pregnancy. Reach much? I love I'm, the theory. Yeah. I'm not buying that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not buying that either. In fact, you guys, this scene here is when I got on Clovis's side. And I absolutely agree that An it was an uproar. That Anakin went overboard. Way overboard for being a Jedi. To me, in this scene... Clovis has game. I don't know why it's so surprising that Clovis is trying to get with Padme. He's always trying to get with Padme. They have a history together where they've done good work, where they've worked closely together, and he's never hid his affection for Padme. You know, he's honest. He's never hid it. Anakin comes in there, 
ready to go, right? Uses his metal hand. I mean, it is an unfair fight from the beginning. I mean, Clovis has no chance of winning, but Clovis gets up every time, throws his punches, basically calls Anakin a sissy, you know, don't use your your Jedi powers, fight like a man. He knew he was going to lose that fight. He still got up and fought, you know, like a man for Padme's affections. You know, that to me, that stand up. You know, you want to say that he was trying to get over on on Padme and, and Anakin's marriage, but he doesn't know that they're married. I know you said that. You know, he doesn't know. I mean, the whole point of her being there and working close is, you know, he's trying to, to get with Padme. And I don't blame him. I was on Clovis's side this right. And I was like, Anakin, you're Darth Vader right now. You want to talk about being a stand up guy, too, at the very end when he has a chance to rat Anakin out for beating the crap out of him and crossing the lines Jedi-wise and to blow the secret of their relationship wide open, what does he do? He says that somebody came in, attacked them, and Anakin drove them away. He right. makes Anakin out to be the hero of the situation. He comes out of the situation the better man, certainly in this situation, and he's already the better man because of, of the beatdown he just took and, and what it was over with the exception of why it was initiated. But he certainly comes out looking like the more honorable of the two uh, as the scene quickly you know, leads us into the next in which we're finally going to see the conversation that those two, Anakin and Padme, have been needing to have for a while. And that, what Clovis did, was completely for Padme's benefit. She, He was showing her how he is a more honorable individual than Anakin. That was, that was done to play Padme. Absolutely. Totally. I absolutely agree. And I think it did because Padme sent Clovis into her bedroom to be taken care of and kicks Anakin out. They, they basically got an uh, informal separation. I don't think we should see each other for a while. What, what, were you guys going steady or something? I mean, that's, that's not how it works, Padme. They're on a break. That's the next scene where they come back together and well, yeah, but have this conversation did, about yeah. this. And yeah, that was the fact that she says things like which it was what was referenced before about, you know, I don't know who's inside you sometimes. Um, this idea of, you know, we need to stay away from each other for a little while, essentially taking a break. It's, like you said, a trial separation. There are so many things about this relationship that don't feel realistic. They're supposed to be the love story of Star Wars, but it never, in a lot of cases in the films, feels particularly realistic. Their time on Naboo, you know, I hate sand. It gets everywhere. <laughs> it always kind of felt forced. And the further we go along, the more it seems like, you know, you get to the end of Attack of the Clones and it's like, I'm sorry, didn't you just have a conversation about how this is going to destroy your lives and you're completely screwed? Granted, you were wearing the, the hoe dress, but didn't you just say that you were going to be completely screwed if you two trying to lie and cover up this relationship? And now all of a sudden you truly, madly, deeply, like the song says, love him or something as you go to die? What gives? Well, it turns out that for the longest time, that was really all we got. And afterwards, we tend to get all this stuff that shows them as the happy couple keeping things secret, and every once in a while there's a danger to the secret, but not of that whole thing breaking down. And now here's Lucas coming in and basically saying, you know how it's broken down in Revenge of the Sith by the end, the kind of person Anakin is turning into, and how she had all those concerns back in Attack of the Clones. Well, those didn't go away, but they're simmering under the surface. And this is what finally brings them up to the surface. This, to me, this arc, and probably why I think it's so important to the overall arc of Star Wars, why I would say that this may be more important to the arc of the saga than the Order 66 arc was, at least as far as, as providing real answers, is this. The character development for Padme and Anakin's relationship right here makes everything connective tissue-wise between 
Attack of the Clones or Revenge of the Sith and that relationship make a hell of a lot more sense because it feels more human and more realistic now with this incident happening. Unfortunately, apparently, the Star Wars version of marriage counseling is you can get rid of all of these types of issues. All you got to do is drop the other man off of a building. Well, and, you know, Padme's like, hey, I don't know who's inside of you sometimes. Like, this is the same guy from Tatooine who went off about, <laughs> you know, not just the women, but the children. And it's all at Obi-Wan's fault. And it's like, no, this is kind of what you signed up for, Padme. Love has made her blind and stupid. <laughs> uh, she's shocked she's shocked now but she says things that are real you know she says that our relationship was built on lies and no relationship's gonna be able to work on that to survive and she's absolutely right she knows it's doomed they know it's doomed you know but she's still in love you know what are you gonna do i don't know see now i know you guys say that at the end she says you know that it's a trial separation she says, I don't think we should see each other anymore. That sounds pretty final to me. Like she is at least considering just ending things right there with Anakin. There's a point where think, she says, stay away I, from me too. I think she has a lawyer on the phone. <laughs> Restraining order, divorce papers are being drawn up. Well, I mean, that, that brings up an interesting, interesting thing. What do you, how do you, how do you end a secret marriage? In a secret divorce court, I don't know, <laughs> on Naboo. You take it to the FISA court, you see, the secret court. Well, uh, you know, this. My, my brother's a divorce attorney. I may have to go ask him about this one. And, you know, it, it, as much as she's having doubts about this, if she's not pregnant already, shouldn't there be a point where Padme says, you know, Anakin sometimes seems like he's going a little, what's the word for it, sithy. Maybe I should get on the space pill. So we don't wind up bringing children into the world to wind up being battered to death by their psychotic father. The space pill. Nice. <laughs> Unfortunately, their health insurance won't cover that. Oh, come on. She's a senator. So as Nathan alluded to, though, we got the big scene at the end where suddenly Anakin can't lift two human beings. Although, you know what? It was Clovis that said, don't use your Jedi tricks. <laughs> it turned on him. It's Freud, right? It's all the psychology of it. So he just can't bring himself to pull Clovis back. But yeah, if there was anything that causes the action of the scene to to merit one of those everything wrong with videos, so to speak, on YouTube, it would be the way that that, that finally gets worked out. The fact that, oh, I can't lift you both. Granted, it is his droid arm, but certainly shouldn't have been able to use the force to, to save one or the other. You know, the only thing that would have made that scene funnier is if we had seen Clovis hit the ground in Wile E. Coyote fashion, you know, to where, like, you don't see Clovis anymore, but then you see this little poof of, of dust and smoke kind of uh, rise from the ground when he hits. You just hear a... <laughs> that would have been awesome. The markings on his face, I think, actually read Acme immune. <laughs> so... When Clovis makes the decision to let go, Jonathan, just like you said, he's doing it for Padme. And since the beginning, from Senate's spy, as soon as he found out that Padme was poisoned, he turned on his partners. He did it for Padme. He stayed behind. So, you know, like I said before, we thought he was going to get executed. And we know now that the reason he's alive is because of his connections with the, with the immune people. And he grew up with some mucky mucks kid. And that's probably the reason why he's alive. 
everything this cat this cat has done has been for Padme. This guy is in love with Padme. You can't knock that. This guy is noble. I, that's that goes to my point when you asked, do I think that he was making a a power play? And I don't think he ever did. When he was talking to Dooku, and we really haven't talked about Dooku, but when he was talking to Dooku, he was trying to be stern with him. We even see him shaking when he's talking to Dooku. And he's trying to be impartial. And I believe him. You know, I was curious if he was shaking, because you, you see that when he reaches for a glass of water. I was curious, was he shaking because of talking with Dooku or because he just got his butt handed to him by Anakin. He's like physically just lucky that he can even hold that pitcher of water. There's two continuity things to bring up here since we don't have a continuity corner in this case. But I want to get into this whole issue of the the, the overall scheme. If it's not his power play, the Sith power play. Uh, The two quick continuity things to note here. They mention on the episode guide, which would have been cool, that when the medical droid that's checking on uh, Clovis in Padme's apartment, uh, the same room where they... Obi-Wan jumped out the window in Attack of the Clones, presumably. While he's being checked out, that droid brings in the little uh, uh, hologram emitter so he can talk to Dooku. That was originally meant to be a droid-like proxy in The Force Unleashed, where he would have created a hologram around himself to become Dooku. But apparently, for whatever reason, they couldn't put together that kind of character model in, in the time that they needed. The other thing being that when we do see the Separatists come to Scipio to attack... They're under the command of Super Tactical Droid Kraken, which is the same, presumably one, that got its head cut off back in the first Lost Missions episode. Uh, Another consequence of them taking this episode and kicking it back out of Season 5. On the episode, guys, they've talked about how either this means that Dooku just uh, got him back and put him back together, or simply bought a very similar model and is now using another one under the same name. But on this whole issue of the the broader plot with Dooku and all, see if this makes sense. It feels like it's one of those, it, it works... And it feels like a Sith plot in Star Wars because they're always convoluted. But that means that it sort of feels like there's an element of the James Bond villain kind of thing in it. Because, okay, there are banking troubles pointing to the Core 5 siphoning off the money that Clovis has found presents an opportunity for Palpatine. He has Nick's card, who he talks to as Sidious, hire Embo, whom he talks to as Sidious, to attack Clovis to push he and Padme together, possibly to also screw with Anakin and kind of keep pushing him towards the dark side, but as a way of making sure that this threat is taken seriously and investigated. This puts Padme in the sights of the moons as a spy, and Anakin has to go and get her out of there, then using Embo again to push them and the data they have gathered off of the planet to Coruscant. Uh, where they can't research anymore directly. That puts Dooku in a position to provide information that fills in the blanks, which locks him into sort of a mob-type deal between Dooku and Clovis. As they reveal the truth of it, they bring down the Core 5, and they create this new, I think they call it the Traxxas Division, which then puts Clovis and four new mutants in charge of the bank, supposedly to be impartial. Dooku uses his influence on Clovis to push him into raising the interest rates on the Republic, but not on the Separatists. In doing so, it causes the Republic contingent that came to try to make sure he was put in charge to be kind of aghast, even as Separatist ships sent by Dooku wind up attacking. But it's essentially a a brief attack so they can take over for just enough time for Palpatine to then send in a heroic liberating Republic force to take over, to frame, do, uh, flame Clovis as the one who was really in league with the Separatists, as they say, so that the bank will have no other choice, it seems, but to turn over control, not to other immunes or to another person like Clovis, 
but to Chancellor Palpatine, which gives Sidious control of the banks. This is one of those massively overcomplicated plot threads that makes sense from a Sith machination perspective, in a sense. But what about this overall plot? Was this believable? Was this carried out in a way that was even able to be followed throughout the episodes themselves? And do you think that the younger audience would have caught any of it along the way? Well, I can answer the question about the younger audience. My boys, 10 and 8, yeah, completely blew over their heads. This is actually their least favorite arc of the uh, season 6. And again, we've talked about this for years, about this series kind of running the gambit between adult movie fan and kid Clone Wars fan. And I think this tried to go right down the middle, and it's one of the difficulties, is one of the problems with this arc. I don't think they did it. Yeah, Jonathan, I think you summed it up very well. I mean, I, th- I think that's uh, a, uh, a great way to look at it. It's just basically, for me, a little a little bit more interesting than what was going on set at Spy, but again, I don't give it any points for being plausible or even a welcome storyline. Yeah, it, it makes sense that, hey, Palpatine's in charge of all the money now, but... Surely there had been a better way of getting there than a three-episode arc. I think they could have condensed it, it, two episodes at most, and I think they could have gotten the same message across, and it would have been a cleaner, sharper, more poignant arc than what we got. Well, you know, to that point, Jerry, and to your point, Nathan, of the broader arc, couldn't Dooku have just not paid the interest on the loans and the banking clan would have fell anyway? Why even put Clovis in that position you know i never really understood that why palpatine even focused any energy on clovis you know why set him up to fail when all all you really had to do was stop paying interest and the banks would have fallen would have fallen anyway well he didn't want the bank to collapse he wanted to be in charge of the bank so i guess he still needed to be in healthy shape obviously the, the was it the five moons that they pretty much uh Basically, you know, in a Superman 1, Superman 2 sort of way, had them all around the faces of... I was expecting Jarrell to put them in a big piece of glass and shoot them out of the ceiling or something. But, you know, they, they dismissed those five as the ones that who were really behind the corruption. They put Clovis there. Well, you know, every, everyone's corrupt. The Separatists have kind of, you know, it tried to influence it. So we'll just give it back to the Chancellor. Of course, we get the same line from Episode 2 where uh, Chancellor Palpatine says, Well, as soon as the Clone Wars are finished, I will... Give back this power that you've given me. (laughs) You know, if he really wanted to control the banks for the Sith, probably shouldn't have killed Plagueis, given the fact that he was already part of the banking clan. Just saying. Uh, Though if you folks out there, if you haven't read the Darth Plagueis novel, you really ought to. It's it's an excellent piece of work as far as tying certain things together. And I'm sure that, you know, all the 10 and 12 year olds out there were getting very upset with the fact that this didn't address some of the issues that were brought up in the, the Plagueis novel. Nathan, I'm sure they were all over that. No, it's not just uh, there aren't any issues per se. It's just you know, it's a very good novel and it, it links this together very well. I, I agree with that, but I think the uh, the target audience for this and for that are probably pretty different. Yeah, probably pretty different. Although uh, I, got, I got to wondering, kind of shaking my head at the end here, because of the last chant that we get in this episode, it made me think. You know, kind of, I mean, it's one of those head slapping. If this is for kids, what what exactly are we feeding them propaganda-wise and thought back to uh, the current and the previous administrations? Uh, because aren't they chanting at the end, long live the banks, long live the banks at the end? 
<laughs> That's a fighting, uh, you know, pep rally if I've ever heard one. So let me ask you guys this. All right. And I kind of have asked Nathan and I think he joked, but was kind of serious. So I, what I what I ask is this. Now that we see this arc and it has fleshed out Clovis character, the Munes, you know, fleshed them out a lot for me. I still don't see how Plagueis could be this scary character coming from these Mune people. They don't seem very scary. They seem kind of dorky. But that's another discussion. So we've seen that. We've seen a lot of good things in this arc. Now, does this arc put any uh, shine a better light on Silent Spy for any of you? <laughs> now, does this make Senate? Does this arc make Senate Spy a better episode? Now that you've watched the Clovis arc. Well, I will say that. This arc, I like the fact that it's connected to something earlier that that we saw, but as far as adding something to it, not really for me. I mean, this arc, as I said earlier, was overall I felt probably the weakest of this uh, of this season with a couple of bright spots, but I think it could have been reworked and streamlined and been much better. And maybe had I not been bored through a lot of it i could have seen some more value in senate spy sorry baron i said earlier that it makes it somewhat better uh it's something i mean it wasn't a bad episode just wasn't one of the best episodes the first time around the fact that we can now view it instead of just in its own right being a setup for the geonosis arc but being a setup for this where a lot of the payoff comes that i think we wanted to see back in senate spy that didn't really hit uh, when we had hoped it would, in that sense, it works out well. I mean, I, don't, I still don't think Senate Spy works necessarily well on its own, and it's kind of an ant beginning to the Geonosis arc. But as a prelude to this and a setup for a relationship that really pays off here, yeah, absolutely, we need Senate Spy. I'll take that. Jerry, what do you think? Well, like I said earlier, I thought about watching Senate Spy before watching this arc, and I just didn't want to. <laughs> And the next time we meet, we're going to be discussing The Disappeared, Parts 1 and 2, bringing back everyone's favorite, Jar Jar Binks. Well, guys, I want to thank you for discussing this arc, and we will see you next time. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks, Jonathan. Night, all. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Republic Forces Radio Network. You can find our reviews of previous Clone Wars episodes, as well as reviews of the Clone Wars micro-series, the classic Droids and Ewoks series, and the theatrical Clone Wars movie in our archive section at www.republicforces.com. And be sure to listen to our other Star Wars podcast, Star Wars Action News, covering all aspects of Star Wars collecting, from figures to high-end collectibles. Star Wars Action News is at SWActionNews.com. Republic Forces Radio Network is hosted by Jonathan, Jerry, Nathan, Dan, Jen, Arnie, and Barrett. Republic Forces Radio Network, RepublicForces.com, and Star Wars Action News are not affiliated with Lucasfilm or any official Star Wars-related company. Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains are copyright and trademark of Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. 
Republic Forces Radio Network is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. This is my impression of Anakin and Clovis in room together. Yeah. Here's here's my impersonation. Ah, Anakin, stop! Ah! Is there a name for this arc, guys, or are we just calling it the Clovis arc? Clovis arc. I'm voting Clovis arc. Yeah, it works for me. Or we could call it the Banking Clan arc, the Marriage Counseling arc, <laughs> <laughs> the I Forbid You arc. Uh, now, nah, okay, Clovis arc it is. Clovis arc it is. <laughs> Wait a minute, Larry Hama did an issue of Star Wars? Yes, G.I. Joe Man. I know. That's awesome. I gotta I gotta I gotta read that one like specifically. Did he do any others? I do not believe so. Um actually hang on, let me double check. Uh he actually he didn't write any others, but he was apparently a cover artist um for issue forty five, three issues earlier, which was the rather nyeh story called Death Probe. Very cool. Which has nothing to do with, well, what you're probably thinking when you think of probes these days. Nathan, you're showing your hand. Better my hand than my anus. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you for the bloopers. <laughs> we're talking about probes. Affection for Padme. You know, he's honest. He's never hit it. And Anakin comes in there. Wait, wait, wait. Did you just say he's never hit it or he's never hit it? Because I think a few years ago he must have hit it. That's why he can't hide it. Maybe I should get on the space pill so we don't wind up bringing children into the world to wind up being battered to death <laughs> by their psychotic father. The space pill. Nice. <laughs> Unfortunately, their health insurance won't cover that. Oh, come on. She's a senator. They've got palpacare. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Oh, oh. goodness. Let so anyway. Health care for old. <laughs> Sometimes, Jonathan, I just know, don't know what's in you or not in you anymore. Uh, Although, wouldn't it have been great if Padme had slipped? I wonder if there's an outtake somewhere where uh, the voice actress for Padme screws up and says, I just don't know who's in me anymore. Which still could refer to Anakin, but then really? has a whole other oh, connotation. God, really? <laughs> I, 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 I would, you said that so many times, and I, I was just wondering, oh, God, is he going to go there? Oh, God, yeah, yeah, of course, you're going to go there. But I only went there in something you could take out and use as an outtake or something, uh, not for the main discussion. Jerry, let the record show. I've been on my best behavior the last three recordings. And the next time we meet, we're going to be discussing the disappeared parts one and two, bringing back... Everyone's favorite, Jar Jar Binks. Misa gonna get some. Uh, you know what? I. I... <laughs> 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 That's the most notable thing about the arc. Oh, My goodness. It was a good. I think that was a good show, guys. I mean, a lot of people aren't gonna like this Clovis arc. A lot of people were poo pooing it, but I think we really did it justice. I thought it was one. I, you cannot tell me that this arc was worse than this Jar Jar arc coming up, or maybe even this Yoda arc with the floating witches. You're oh, telling no, me th that this, this arc was worse than those two? Come on, Jonathan. I'm, I'm saying that I was at least engaged with the Jar Jar arc. I was just going, really? 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 But I was engaged. 
I, with this arcade, I, I found my, I mean, you know, I got, I watched these repeatedly and I just found my mind wandering. I had to like, wait, what did I just miss? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're going back to like Ewok level where I, I think at one point I fell asleep. <laughs> oh my, God, my goodness. I That's fell asleep. Insane. I don't fall asleep for these things. <laughs> no, you, like, like you have to watch the episode like three times just to get it once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of. He did what with the banks and whose interest and who's Padme with wh- who's inside who what? I, I can't. <laughs> I, the whole time I'm watching this arc and Senate Spy, I'm thinking uh, somewhere Natalie Portman is watching this, thinking this is what I was promised for episode two that it never came to fruition. You know, her fighting the corruption. And stuff like that. If they had put this in episode two, we never would have gotten an episode three. <laughs> oh, God. I love this arc. I would say this is the best one besides the Order 66 arc. I said it, and I'm going to stick to it, and I'm going to say it after we close the whole Shebang Nations. Now, I'm going to have to rewatch the Yoda arc to sort out my feelings about it, but I'm, I may be with Barrett there. Like I said, this, this felt very Star Wars prequels to me. More than that, that's not a compliment. <laughs> I'm just saying, it, it, it felt, it, if Star Wars is to be measured by both trilogies now, this felt very Star Wars. Order 66 felt more, or 66 felt more conspiracy driven and didn't really provide a ton of answers, some, but didn't clarify everything. The next arc is kind of, you know, Saturday morning serial type thing. And then the Yoda one is just sort of like, what if we take all these force ideas, stick them together and smoke them in a crack pipe? <laughs> the Yoda one is just ridiculous. The Yoda one is LeBron James in Pharrell's hat. Ridiculous. 